Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Alina Martin. We're reporters at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and non-for-profit sector. In this episode, we'll be joined by Robin Osterley from the Charity Retail Association and Libby Gordon from Farrah UK to talk about the growing appeal of charity shopping. And in the Good News Bulletin later, we'll be looking at the charity calendar offerings for 2023. But first, Alina, you did an in-depth report the other week on how charity shops are currently thriving against the economic odds. Um, Must have been nice to have been reporting on something positive for a change. Um, But for the benefit of our listeners who haven't yet read the piece, what did you uncover? Yes, I have some good news for once. Uh, Despite the fact that high street retail is seriously suffering right now, charity shops are doing better than ever. Figures from the Charity Retail Association show that charity shop sales are up by 10% compared to the same period last year, which puts the total yearly amount that charity shops raise for charities at an impressive $360 million. Mm. Now, of course, this is not all good news. Uh, one of the reasons a lot of people have started shopping in charity shops is a decrease in disposable income, which has left many trying to make their money go as far as it can. But according to experts, there are other more positive reasons too, such as a greater awareness about the impact of fast fashion on climate change and a desire to reduce the amount of clothing that ends up in landfill. And a lot of people seem to be discovering the pleasure of going to a charity shop and having a shopping day in the hopes of finding a bargain, because it can be a bit like a treasure hunt, right? I definitely felt the excitement earlier this week when we went on our little expedition. As did I. Yes. So just before we go on to that little segment, I must, of course, plug the Third Sector website where your piece is available for subscribers to read. So before we introduce our guest this week, we thought we'd take you out onto the streets of London to meet some charity shop managers and find out how business is going for them. We're in Portobello Road in Notting Hill, and this is the Mary's Living and Giving Shop for Save the Children. This is Chris Thomas, store manager. Basically, we're like a a boutique. Uh, We sell a lot of vintage clothes, which we buy in, actually, by the kilo, uh, £7 a kilo. And then we, we aim to triple or quadruple, you know, the earning of that. In the window, we've got fluffy suede coats, Portobello Road is home to vintage clothes shops and thrift stores, and among them is a cluster of high-end charity shops. Business is good when we can get the doors open. Um, We struggle with volunteer numbers. Weekends are great because it's Portobello Road and you've got the market and you've got the tourist trade from Thursday to Sunday. If you can get the shop open on those days, you do really well. I mean, for example, on Saturday, I think we took about £1,200. Last week we opened for four days, four full days. Um, Ideally we'd like to open for seven. The week before I think we traded five days, but the week before that we traded two. So, and this week I'm still unsure how many days we're going to open. It's looking like it might be four, might be five. I'm sort of playing it by ear at the moment. We popped down the road to another charity shop whose manager wished to remain anonymous. Over the last couple of years, we've really built this business up and it is a fantastic place for the community and also for thrift shoppers, for bargain hunters, for treasure hunters. Everybody 
um, can find something in this shop. And it seems like for the last year, we've been consistently busy. Sustainability is becoming more and more important. People are making better choices when they're shopping. And um, tourists, obviously, because it's Portobello Road, love thrifting. Um, and in terms of the community, they can always find things that they need at reasonable prices. And the growing trend for charity shopping is reflected in their revenues. Well, if we take it, if we take it from 2019 figures, it's three times that now. I think that uh, people are waking up to uh, the realities of the climate crisis and that's having an, an, an impact on fashion shopping, certainly. The one thing that we always need is volunteers and the more people that we have on board, the more we can prepare, the more we can sell. I'm afraid you're going to have to excuse me. I've got somebody I need to help. Absolutely. <laughs> Hello. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. From designer dresses priced at £220 in one charity shop to three in the market outside. And then down to 50p as I pop into a charity shop on the less affluent Harrow Road on my way home. Hi, my name is Mavlida Lazibi and uh, I'm the area manager. I work for Human Leaf Foundation. Uh, there are many customers who, are, who will come to the shop and of course bargaining and asking for discounts and bothering and bothering. But, um, I mean, don't get me wrong, at the same time we got really some lovely customers and especially wonderful donors um, all over and all kind of um, nationalities and all kind of backgrounds. We got so much donations, sometimes it's even hard to cope with the donations. Sportwear, this is, I mean, the top seller, as well as, uh, obviously, this time, jackets and the warm clothing. But both the shop and the customers are feeling the cost of living crisis. Now, for example, this year we, we are planning to uh, use as less as possible heaters, keep the door closed, heat only when really necessary. Um, this is really what we can do. Even the customers are hit with the crisis. We got, for example, lots of customers who will just come to and they ask for, for clothing and they simply tell you, I don't have, can I, can I have? Well, I feel cold, I don't have, can I have? But obviously we are a charity and we are there to support and to help, so you can't say no. Since um, probably six months or... Yeah, the motives in the shops. And then obviously many of the volunteers, for example, they will come uh, for some kind of interest. And for example, you will have some volunteers, they will come and they come first day to wanting to bring a suitcase with them. Bring suitcases? <laughs> How often does that happen? <laughs> Few times. Wow, well, I suppose it's like washing up in the restaurant or something, you know. <laughs> so three quite different snapshots, but definitely with some recurring themes. It doesn't seem like stock is a problem for any of the charities we spoke to. It's more a shortage of reputable volunteers and, of course, the rising costs. Mm -hmm. 
So now it's time to introduce our guests to help us dive deeper into the issues and suggest how charities can make the most of this changing consumer trend. First up is Libby Gordon, the Chief Executive of Farah UK, a charity which seeks to transform lives in Romania's poorest communities and raises the vast majority of its revenue from its charity shops. Farah has some 40 shops across London, including a very stylish boutique just off Portobello Road. Hello, Libby. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. <laughs> and also joining us is Robin Osterley, Chief Executive of the Charity Retail Association, which is the main membership group for charity shops in the UK and represents around 9,000 shops. The CRA seeks to champion charity retail and be a knowledge hub for the sector, as well as promoting environmental sustainability. Hello, Robin. Hi there. <clears throat> nice to see you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. And since you are at the head of the sector's knowledge hub, can you start telling us about how you categorize the four different types of charity shoppers and what changes you've seen in the past few years among these groups? Sure. Well, in the, in the last year, we've been talking about these four different types of shoppers, if you like. So those would be uh, initially people who actually need to shop in charity shops for economic reasons, I guess. Um, this is obviously in some ways it's a little bit sad that such people exist, but nevertheless, uh, charity shops provide them with an incredibly important uh, public service. And it's really important that such uh, shops are available for people to use. So that's the first type of shopper, if you like. The second type of shopper, and obviously there are massive overlaps between all of these different categories. Um, but the second type of shopper is, I guess, the person who's looking for some variety. So you know, most of the shops on the high street, certainly in terms of clothing, send, sell pretty much the same stuff. And charity shops act as an antidote to that. So you can find things in charity shops that you might not be able to find elsewhere. So that's the, the variety shopper, if you like. The third, uh, you might describe as a kind of craft shopper, someone who uses charity shops as a source for materials for their, their craft work or perhaps doing some upcycling, uh, finding unusual items, particularly in the, in the areas of furniture and household goods. Uh, where they might be able to turn them into something a bit different and unusual. So that's the third type. And the fourth type is the sustainability shopper, I guess. So these are people who uh, want to do their shopping in a way that makes less impact on the environment. Uh, in particular, they want perhaps their uh, their hard-earned pounds to go towards good causes rather than um, a hedge fund in London somewhere. Uh, and they're really keen to make the minimum amount of impact on the environment that they can during their shopping. So what's exciting, I suppose, from our point of view, um, is that those four types of shoppers really aren't really going anywhere uh, in, the, in the near future. And whilst we're obviously reluctant to profit from people's economic uncertainty and difficulties, nevertheless, as I say, they're, they're performing a public service. All the other three categories we're delighted to see are in, you know, um, increasing all the time. So actually, in terms of trading, uh, it's a fantastic moment for, uh, for charity shops. And because of the huge environmental benefits of them, uh, long may that continue. And have you seen any changes in the sort of size of these four respective groups over the past few years? Um, only that they're all growing, I think, uh, almost in parallel. Um, what's quite interesting was that when we had the last massive recession in, in 2008, that did fuel a, a very substantial growth in charity shops. Um, and we seem to be in a similar sort of situation except that in 2008, we started to run out of stock, actually. Um, donations were, uh, were becoming a bit of a problem. Um, but this time round, that doesn't seem to be the case at all. And, and it sort of points to mm. uh, a zeitgeist, I think, where people are much more 
uh, prepared to donate to charity shops than they were a few years ago. It's really becoming a kind of cornerstone of people's activities to buy from charity shops and then to donate when those items have reached the end of their uh, end of their life with those people. And Libby, is that reflective of um, what you've been seeing um, in Fires charity shops? Yes, I echo everything that Robin says. Uh, so that's great that we're on the same page. But so we have definitely seen increases across all of those um, all of those categories. Um, and Farah are quite uniquely placed in the fact that we have within our shops 14 children's shops. Um, and so they kind of tick a number of boxes, um, you know, whereby people for need, you know, children grow, um, I've heard. Uh, and so, you know, they are able to shop for their children in our shops and, you know, also as well, you know, get value for money, um, but also find things that are unique, that are interesting. Um, and there is a real drive, uh, you know, as Robin says, particularly around the sustainability agenda. I think for us particularly, you've seen a real increase. Um, and I suppose uh, individuals kind of in that Gen Z category with a particular focus on wanting something that is both unique and sustainable. Um, and for us, that's been a real increase, I would say, in the last couple of years particularly. And Robin, how are charities innovating to keep up with the, not only the level of demand, but also the different kinds of demand to respond to all these different groups of customers? Um, I've seen that there have been such things as charity superstores coming up. Um, there's a lot of online, moving to the online shopping experience. What have you noticed in terms of innovation? Mm. Well, one, one interesting thing about the, the, the charity shop sector, I think, is that they are very creative. Uh, and whenever they sort of strike a problem, uh, they tend to find a creative solution around it. Uh, a great example of that, I guess, would be what you know what was happening during during lockdown, when obviously shops weren't allowed to open, but people were still, in some cases, running click and collect operations. Uh, as you say, moving some of their operations online um, and doing various other things that could, you know, counter the, the lockdown situation. Indeed, the growth of superstores is is quite a significant factor because obviously by their nature that people don't open superstores every five minutes, but uh, certainly large numbers of our members are seeing that large format store and you're looking at something like sort of 10,000 square feet or more. Um, these sorts of stores uh, are creating massive economies of scale, allowing people to uh, have a much wider variety of stocks so that people from all walks of life can come in and find something that's useful for them. Um, so all of these are quite interesting developments. And another really interesting development, actually, is the uh, charity shop gift card, uh, which a number of our, our members are, are adopting, which enables people to uh, purchase uh, items. You know, what you, you can imagine what a charity shop gift card does. Um, but what's really exciting about that as well is that we're starting to find uh, some charities purchasing them for use uh, with their service users. So if you imagine a, a charity that's perhaps involved in migration you know, or something like that, uh, migrants tend to come over with absolutely nothing other than the clothes they stand up in. You can give them, if you're such a charity, you can give them a, a gift card and they can go into a charity shop and, and purchase stuff with the dignity of choice instead of having to sort of scrabble around in a warehouse and find what mm. you know, what happens to be there. So uh, those are some examples, really, of the way that uh, our members have been innovating over the past year or two. The other massive aspect of it is that they are finding that it's necessary to 
uh, employ more staff to cope with this and possibly, unfortunately, also employ more staff because there's a bit of a shortage of volunteers. But perhaps we'll get to talk a little bit about that later. Thank you. Yeah, it sounds like innovation indeed. And um, Libby, how is Farah adapting um, your retail offering to meet sort of evolving customer demands and needs? So I think there's kind of, there's twofold. So coming back to the point about the different demographic of people. Um, so one of the things that we have just recently done a couple of months ago was we've opened a kind of Farah value store. Um, so coming back to what I mentioned about kids clothing, um, we have a lot of uh, children's clothing donated, but we also recognise that there is a need, as Robin mentioned, for people who maybe don't have as much money to spend, but their children are growing. So we have opened a kind of a concept of a Farrah value store, um, which means that people can get the things they want, but for cheaper. And I think the other thing that we're also recognising is that, coming back to what I said before around, I suppose, that Gen Z population and that people wanting to kind of publicly talk about what it is that they're finding um, and you know so our kind of hashtag Farrah finds is kind of slowly increasing on social media um, we are looking at things in our shops like one of our flagship stores which is in Islington so just a couple of minutes walk from Angel we've painted some big wings um, on the wall so people who can come in can try on their clothes and take a picture next to these wings and post that on Instagram and the small things like that which are both engaging our customers I think for us one of the things that's really Really important is that we are embedded within the 26 communities that our 40 shops uh, exist within. You know, we are really looking at how we can engage with that community more than we do already, make sure that the stock reflects that community, but also that our staff are, you know, comfortable and confident and well-trained and able to talk and engage with members of the community because, you know, our shops are also not just a place to find a bargain um, or pick up something for value, they're also a place to kind of come and engage with, you know, and get that social interaction as well. So I think that that's also an important part that we play. Robin, we've talked about everything that's going right for charity shops at the moment. We are still in a cost of living crisis, and I wonder if there is an impact going on on charity shops um, from the cost of living crisis, um, from rising overhead costs. Do you have any members that have had shops forced to close because of it? Or is it all just great news all around? Um, okay, so the key factor, I guess, is that um, cost of living obviously affects charity shops significantly because they are operating bricks and mortar property by and large. I mean, you're right about the online, uh, the growth of online, but that's still a relatively small proportion of what charity shops do. Bricks and mortar is really what they're still about. And clearly those shops have significant costs in terms of property uh, and in particular energy costs. So yes, that that is going to have an impact. I don't know of anyone who's been forced to close any, any shops at the moment. Um, and that's partly because trading, as we were talking about earlier, is so strong that it would be you know, a significant loss for them. And actually, in a lot of cases, they can mitigate the increasing costs through improved trading. But I wouldn't say that you know, absolutely everything in the garden is rosy. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, probably the key issue for charity shops at the moment is is that it's becoming harder and harder to find volunteers. Um, as you probably know, volunteers are really the lifeblood of charity shops. They provide the vast majority of the labour, if I may put it that way, that goes on in charity shops. And every time a volunteer goes and, and doesn't return, 
um, then you see clearly that uh, you know those gaps have to be plugged often by paid staff, which again increases people's costs. And to put this in perspective, before the pandemic, we had around 230,000 volunteers across the sector. Um, now we're looking at more like about 180,000. So that's a very substantial uh, loss in volunteers, uh, which is uh, which is clearly uh, kind of worrying. I think the jury is still out as to where, you know, whether that's going to be a permanent uh, loss or whether people will start coming back uh, as they get a bit more confident in going to the outside world again. Um, but certainly that is the one cloud on the horizon, I think, for, for charity retail at the moment. And I mean, that's quite a significant decrease in, in volunteer numbers that you quoted. Um, but conversely, are you seeing new entrants in the form of new bricks and mortar charity shops coming onto the market? Uh, yes, we are, actually. Um, there are more and more charities joining us with maybe one shop, two shops, or in some cases, actually no shops, uh, because they're just interested in seeing whether or not it's a market they would like to get into. Um, so our membership figures have grown from oh, uh, just around 400 in uh, kind of March 2020 before the pandemic to about 460 now. Uh, that's the number of charities uh, that we have in membership that own shops. So the answer is yes. I mean, it does seem to be something, it's really important income for charities. And this is the reason why, I think. So uh, our best guess is that our members receive, in terms of profit, actual you know, income contribution, in the region of a third of a billion pounds a year from their retail operations. And of course, that is unrestricted income. That's money that they can do whatever they like with. It's not project income where they have to spend it on a certain thing. It's unrestricted. So it's really important income for them. Um, and that's why we're seeing more and more charities, I think, being interested in uh, opening retail operations. It's not for everyone, uh, but for those, particularly those who are looking for a greater presence in the town centre, where the shop, if you like, can show people the name of the organisation, acting like as a, you know, literally as a shop window for the charity's activities, particularly in those situations, uh, it's a really good thing for charities to be doing. And um, Libby, I mean, Farah is quite unique, right, in the huge proportion of your revenues coming from your shops. Um, how are you responding to the challenges of declining volunteer numbers? Is that affecting you and um, and also inevitably the, the rising uh, running costs and energy costs? So... Um, Farah is quite unique in that we do run, um, you know, charity shops kind of, some of them run quite a high staff model and some of them run quite a high volunteer model. Um, and we run this on the slightly higher side in terms of, of paid staff. But what that does obviously mean is that, you know, we want to make sure that we pay our staff fairly and well. And so we are then struggling on the same side with the kind of increased, you know, cost of living. Um, those individuals themselves are struggling. And so we have to think both with our hat on in terms of, you know, an employer, um, how are we best looking after our staff in this context? But then also, how do we continue to raise the money that we need to raise uh, to send to, you know, our, our programmes in Romania? Um, you know, and they're also seeing high levels of inflation and increased costs. So it, it's a, it is getting that balance, um, you know, getting that balance right. And there are, there are kind of small tweaks around the edges that we can make in terms of, you know, one of the things that we have always historically done is, is said that an open door um, is important because it invites people in. Because if they have to open open the door, that's a barrier to coming into the shop. And lots of people come into charity shops just to take a look around and sort of pop in. Simple things like we're taking the decision that if we are heating or cooling our shops, we are going to have the door closed because that means that we save on energy costs and, you know, we're really conscious again of 
our environmental impact and all of that stuff is interlinked. So that's a really small example, but it is something that you know is changing the way that we're operating. You know, thinking about things like when we keep the lights on and when we turn the lights off. You know, if the lights aren't on in the evening, that means people don't drive past us and think, "Oh, I want to go back there tomorrow," because they haven't seen us. So, you know, those are small things, but they do have an impact. And then, and we're London-based, you know, and we've got these wonderful buildings, you know, that were built in the Victorian ages and that, which make our shops unique and interesting. But they come with their own challenges of things like, you know, if it rains a bit too much or if it's a bit too hot. So, you know, we we are dealing with all of those things um, on a on a day on a daily basis. And Libby, you talked earlier about um, trying to get a hashtag going for the for the shops and trying to get newer younger generations into the store through maximizing on the shops being Instagrammable and so on. Um, do you have any tips for the effective use of Instagram and TikTok <laughs> and perhaps uh, building relationships with influencers even in the way that a more traditional high street store would do? So I laugh slightly because one of the things that I have had to learn about in this job is TikTok. Um, so, uh, you know, which does make me feel probably older than I think I am. Um, but one of the things that I found really interesting has been how effective the use of kind of influencers and social media has been for us as an organisation. And actually, it's, it's a quite an easy sell because, as I've mentioned before, um, that sort of, you know, like Gen Z or iGen, the internet generation, you know, they want to be on the internet. They want to have things to talk about. And here we are promoting, you know, as Robin said, things of value, things that are unique, things that are sustainable. Um, and our shops look interesting. And so actually, in a way, it sort of sells itself. Um, and we've found generally that when we've approached people, either directly through Instagram or Facebook or TikTok, that actually they've just been quite receptive. Uh, to the kind of the offer that we've got come along into our shop see what we've got um, and actually it's, it hasn't been a particularly hard sell so I suppose my my top tip to people would be just ask and one of the things I've found you know we had uh, an event uh, in October with a collaboration with the London School of Fashion and we had a number of influencers uh, come along to that event including you know kind of charity shop girl um and city thrifter i can probably i think there were at least a number of others that i'm you know that i can't remember we had uh, isabella papas who is uh, you know one of disney celebrity i don't quite sure but you anyway, know so we had a number of them come along and they were just genuinely really excited to be with us and kind of talk about sustainability um, and just see what we're doing and have conversations with us. Particularly on the sustainability side of charity shopping, I think there's a really important role for uh, influencers. Um, and actually, we are right in the middle right now of compiling a directory of influencers who have a particular interest in charity shops. So um, I think it was a really interesting question. And, and I think it is something that we're going to see much more of in the, in the near future. And Libby, have you been able to measure sort of the impact that engaging with these influencers and more broadly on TikTok, for example, what, what effect and impact that's had on your customer traffic and even revenue numbers? It's not, I'm not going to be able to give you kind of like X number of percentage increase, but every time uh, we have an influencer who visits one of our shops, the shop manager will, will report back, oh, actually I saw an increase in the number of people, or someone will come in, and again, coming back to what I said before, you know, a key part of kind of what we try and do is engage with our customers and be part of the community, 
And so actually our shop managers and shop staff are talking to people. Oh, how did you find, you know, when they say, this is the first time I've been here, it's great. How did you find out? Oh, I saw it on, you know, insert influencers, TikTok or Instagram. Um, and we have a couple of times tried to kind of do discount codes. To be honest, we just we just tend to see more people. They come in and then they want to tell us that they've seen us on Instagram. Um, and, you know, I mentioned we did a collaboration I said, with the London College of Fashion um, and held an event back in October with that. And, you know, the shop manager, you know, the week after said to me, Libby, I saw all of these fashion students come in and shop with us. They were queuing outside the door to get in. I haven't quite worked out a way to actually capture that. Um, if anyone's got a great Excel spreadsheet, you know, go on, give it to me. But at the moment, we're just getting a lot of really positive feedback from our shop teams around people, I suppose being excited about being part of that sustainability movement um, and I think that's one of the things as Robin mentioned that influencers are really great for. They really want to help to promote that and then the people that come in after them feel like they're part of that, you know, sort of part of that evolution uh, which I think is really great. And building wider communities isn't it? Yeah, we're all about community and I think that's the kind of thinking about influencers is that your community is your bricks and mortar. People want to come in and have a chat and see the clothes and find a random piece of art while also picking up, an, you know, a, a gift and a dress. But, you know, they also want to feel part of the wider internet community and be able to share. And so it's how we get that mix promoting what all of the shop charity shops do that, you know, as I've kind of said, we, you know, all of us were doing sustainability before it became a hashtag. Robin, what are your top tips for charities, perhaps ones that are not as established in, in the retail space as Farah, for example? How can how can charities ensure that they maximize the benefits of this charity shopping boom? By far the most significant thing that they can do is to ensure that their shops are those kinds of community hubs that Libby has been talking about. It's no longer just a question of grabbing some stuff from the public, sticking it on shelves and hoping it will fly out the door. Um, you have to establish yourself as an important part of the community um, and ensure that your shop is well known, is well understood by by you know local community groups, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Mum's Net, whether it's uh, the local school. So I, I think that's absolutely critical. Use the space that you've got as wisely as you can to ensure that your charity is being signalled through the shopping environment. So it's not just a question of someone wandering into a charity shop and saying, oh, they don't even know where I am. You know, this is this is a place that has secondhand clothes, but I don't know who it belongs to. You need to use that space in order to promote the cause. And if you've got enough space, actually, uh, to allow people to access your your charity services through the shop as well, if that's if that's feasible, in, depending on the charity. So I think it's maximising the use of that asset uh, in all of those community based ways, which is where charities get the, the most out of their out of their shops. I think. Thank you very much. And uh, Libby, do you have any other parting words of wisdom for perhaps slightly less established charity retail operations? I've been a charity shop shopper forever um, and now finally I'm cool which is excellent for me um, but actually I think that what it means is that the time has come now to sort of to step into that space and I think um, one of the challenges that we've always got is around kind of people always talk about quality and quantity but something that charity shops can uniquely do is kind of merchandise or kind of combine things, as Robin mentioned at the beginning, to create something unique and interesting. So it doesn't really matter what 
brand your clothes are, people care less about that now. It's about what the things look like together. So if you can get someone who's got a little bit of creativity, a little bit of an eye for colour or fashion or interest, bringing those bits together and putting that in the window and putting that well on your rails, then actually just, you know, you use that and go with it because, you know, I think that there's a real opportunity to do that and to capture the moment that we're in. Are you optimistic about the future of charity retail? I mean, I think I'm genuinely optimistic about everything in life. Um, But in terms of uh, optimistic about charity retail, I really am. Every conversation that I'm having with people that I interact with, my friends or other connections, I'm hearing them talk about charity shops and they want to ask me questions about them and how do I donate to them? Great question. I obviously give them all of the detail about us or others in their area. Um, But, you know, and also encouraging people to, to, to shop in them. And I think that the fact that lots of people are talking about it and, and they now see it as being a key part of their high street rather than something that they didn't like. I am increasingly optimistic about the, the future of the sector. Yeah, likewise. Um, there is an extraordinary zeitgeist for change uh, which charity shops are benefiting from. And, and as I mentioned earlier, I don't think that's going away at all. I think it's actually becoming quite... In fact, it's growing substantially. And this is a huge difference between 2022's economic circumstances and 2008's economic circumstances. People want to get out of this recession, not simply by um, you know, spending their way out of it, but actually by spending more wisely and making a less of an impact on the environment. And I honestly can't see that changing. Whatever colour of government we have, what in whatever awful things that might strike us in the near future. I don't see that side of it changing. And charity shops are absolutely in the forefront of that. So I I am very optimistic about the future for shops. I do think the government has to be extremely careful to ensure that the shopping environment for charity shops and indeed the environment generally for parent charities is as sound as it possibly can be. Um, And to ensure that uh, there aren't unintended consequences of legislation and things which hurt charities or indeed their, indeed their shops. But assuming that uh, you know, we can see our way through all of those various issues, um, I'm extremely optimistic about uh, the way that uh, charity retailers like to go in the future, yeah. A nice positive note to end on. Uh, Libby Gordon from Farah UK and Robin Osterley from the Charity Retail Association, thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Now for the Good News Bulletin, featuring everything from the positive to the downright strange stories we've spotted in the sector. What's on the agenda today, Lucinda? Well, now that the end of the year is fast approaching, I did a little review of the 2023 charity calendar offerings. And I'm pleased to report that there's an eclectic choice this year. We've got animal calendars, such as the Cheshire and North Wales police dogs photographed in action to raise funds for the Paws of Charity and Thin Blue Paw Foundation. Then there's the usual choice of nudes. (laughs) And I just want to ask, what is it about people taking their clothes off for charity calendars? I think it's just an excuse. (laughs) I think it must be. Anyway, the uh, St Neots community calendar particularly caught my eye, featuring carpet fitters, jewellery shop staff and plasterers all in the nude. Um, That one will be raising funds for the Hunts Community Cancer Network. And the first print run has apparently almost sold out since it went on sale two weeks ago. Okay. But my favourite is a calendar featuring drone photos of the roundabouts of Nuneaton. 
in aid of the Midlands Air Ambulance Charity. <laughs> I just find this highly original compared to yet more nudes on your kitchen wall for 12 months. Yes, but it clearly sells. <laughs> well, yes, it does. Let's see how the roundabouts of Nuneaton do this year. Um, photographer John Neal, who took the initiative, said he was inspired after seeing how they looked at night from the air. So there you have it. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week to discuss charity Christmas campaigns. So if you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to the Third Sector podcast to be the first to know about it. And if you have any thoughts on our podcast, such as what topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, then we are still running our survey. You can find the link in the show notes and it should take you no more than five minutes to complete. And we would really love to hear your thoughts. But for now, I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Alina Martin. Thank you to our guests, Robin Osterley and Libby Gordon, and our producer, Nav Pal. Join us again next week.